This podcast was produced on the unceded lands of the Barramadigal of the Darug Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. COVID-19 at the area. Corona vibes in the area. Best to stick to your own area. George Vitalation in the area. Shares a white talk. Hi and welcome to Season 3 of The Colour Cycle, a podcast that aims to disrupt cultural whitewashing and provide strategies for cultural and racial equity in the creative sector. I'm Lena Nahlus, the Executive Director of Diversity Arts Australia, or DARTS for short. Previously on The Colour Cycle, we've talked a lot about the carrot and the stick approach to increase diversity on our screens. For example, tying government funding to diversity quotas. But do quotas and targets really work? In early 2021, the ABC, Australia's national broadcaster, introduced diversity targets for TV series that are made by external production companies and bought by the ABC. These targets stipulate that the TV programs must be either about underrepresented communities or experiences or include at least one main cast member who is Indigenous Australian or from a culturally or linguistically diverse background or is someone who lives with a disability or someone who identifies as LGBTQI+. In the UK, for a film or TV show to win a BAFTA, the British equivalent of an Oscar, the production has to meet at least two out of four diversity criteria. This is an example of both a carrot and a stick. During my trip to the UK in 2019 as part of the Intersect Exchange Program, I spoke to our next guest, Jennifer Smith, the Head of Inclusion at British Film Institute, or BFI for short. Jennifer drove transformational change on diversity at the social housing provider Circle Housing. Now she's building on the BFI's diversity standards to create new opportunities for thousands of Britons from all backgrounds to work both behind and in front of the camera. I sat down to talk with Jennifer Smith in an empty cinema at the BFI in London. So I'm Jen Smith, Head of Inclusion at the British Film Institute. And the British Film Institute are the lead body for the screen sectors in the UK. So we have a bespoke brief from government to look after the health of independent film in the UK and emerging new platforms. And particularly within that, we're really concerned about inclusivity and cultural diversity that you see on screen. Can I just ask you a little bit about some of the barriers that specifically culturally diverse, but but also you work across all diversity. So some of the barriers that people who are not part of the mainstream uh, and want to or work in the screen sector face in the UK? So I, I actually think we've got things the wrong way around. And the biggest barriers for me is about the mindset and the setup of the industry. We tend to get it the wrong way around. We load the responsibility onto individuals and say, what training can we give you? How can we help you penetrate this impenetrable industry when actually it's about the infrastructure of the industry that needs to change? It's the infrastructure of the industry that is broken. And yes, you might want to have some interventions where you support people to smash through that but fundamentally we need to steer away from the transience of things like diversity initiatives and just make things permanent so things like our diversity standards they're a permanent part of our funding criteria and that matters because diversity initiatives come and go and we've not seen the impact or the sum total of impact for the last 30 years so we need a fresh approach and our approach really is that the inclusion issue is a commercial one. This is about making great uh, stories and allowing people and enabling people to tell their stories and measuring and monitoring and making sure that funding that we give out is fair and proportionate. You know, we want British film to look like the British public and that's our aspiration. And in order to do that, we need to make inclusion just a permanent core part of our business and the industry rather than something that's kind of the side dish it's the main main ingredient and we need to think in that way commercially about how it impacts for the better the result and the um, output of what you're going to make. Can you tell us what the diversity standards are? 
Several years ago, before I joined the British Film Institute, my colleagues set up what were known as the three ticks. They were really a pilot phase about standardising inclusion within our contracts. So if you wanted money out of the BFI, you needed to evidence to the team that was assessing your funding application how you were going to drive inclusivity through your project, whether that was a festival, production, whatever. We recognised there was a need for that level of intervention. At the time, there was pushback from the media, from the industry. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You would expect all of that. If you're trying to smash three when you've got your head above the parapet, you will get that pushback. But the thing is, is to have courage, lead with confidence. And we knew that we had to do something or, you know, we could just be like everybody else and do nothing. We have, you know, what I would describe as imperfect tools but something that is helping to push the industry onwards what the diversity standards look at is on-screen representation so themes and narratives are you avoiding those common old tropes that bore us on screen or are you doing something edgy new dynamic brilliant leadership behind the camera who is in a leadership authoritative position to be able to cast their creative gaze over the project that you are doing The third part is compulsory, so it's about allowing fresh talent to come into the industry, and that is important, although we shouldn't load everything onto future generations and put all our interventions at uh, entry level. And the fourth bit is distribution, who gets to see your film. So one of the things I've experienced is great stuff that's been made, and then the distribution sector just don't pick up this fantastic piece of work that deserves to have a wider audience because they're stuck in their own trope of what they think people want. And again, again, it just plays into the whole commercial argument about underserved audiences, us not becoming stale, but continuing to be fresh and excite people and enthrall people. And aside from my professional career, just as a viewer, I want to see the stuff. I want to see authenticity. I want to see new, exciting, edgy stuff. I want to know. I want those vast chasms of our cultural heritage which have not been addressed as the UK. I want those stories to be told. And has there been pushback with the introduction of the diversity standards from the from the industry? Was How did they receive that initially? So there has been some pushback around the diversity standards initially when they were in their pilot phase as the three ticks. I think people perhaps didn't understand the severity of the situation for the industry. Now we have great recognition for them and people who are driving forward their activism, so the Time's Up movement in the UK, which is looking at workplace culture and inclusion and trying to drive a more inclusive workplace industry for film and TV, have said, we embrace them. These are a flagship part of what we should be supporting. The diversity standards now are part of BAFTA's criteria for getting two categories. So if you want a BAFTA for Best British Film or Best British Debut, you need to get on board with the diversity standards. We did a really successful pilot with BAFTA last year. And um, it's really important now that BIFA, the British Independent Film Association, BBC Film and Film 4 have come with us. So all public funding in the UK is subject to the same measure. And that consistency, consistency and permanence are the two things I'm looking for to be able to drive the change. If they're just like a transient intervention and then we they fall away after a couple of years, so what? That's what we've been doing for 30 years, a bit here, a bit there. You know, they need to be permanent and they need to have as far reach as we can. So we're trying to explain that out. And I think we've overcome that hurdle of pushback and that people are now with them and embrace them and understand them and see their value. That's fantastic. It's good to know too that, you know, that there was initial feedback but then people have kind of come on board and it just sometimes takes time for people to to I guess readjust or change the way that they see things or the possibilities. I wanted to ask a little bit about the certification team at the BFI because I find it fascinating that not only do people have to that they get measured via the their applications for funding and support get you know measured via the diversity standards but you actually have a team that 
kind of interrogates the applications to some extent. Uh, the certification team at the BFI are my colleagues that look after certification as a British film and the tax relief for the screen industry. So that includes gaming as well as film and TV. So they're a really pivotal part of what the BFI does and within that it just felt sensible if they're assessing films anyway for the cultural test that they should do the assessments for the diversity standards as well and what that does is give kind of independent rigor and interrogation and pushback into scripts into ideas for festivals in terms of you know what people are proposing feedback will always be given to say this is not okay, or, you know, why does that character have to be a guy? Or, you know, have you thought creatively about this? So they're quite a pivotal part of the process. And we're also joining up with our colleagues in the filmography team who release some data around gender in the film industry and are also doing ethnicity research. And we are very keen that the richness of data that we are getting from the diversity standards actually feeds the broader picture for the industry. Now, getting that right is quite challenging because you also need to ensure that the industry understands how to monitor diversity data and that is normalised. And we're helping production companies normalise that and just like, it's okay to ask your crew these questions. We have been through sufficient rigour with data protection law to ensure that we can ask these in the right way. But we need that data capture to be consistent so that we can start to make sure that we're feeding the industry with proper populating, with proper data that will help us see a richness of where the diversity standards are really shifting the dial and where we might want to do more. So if you imagine the screen sector in 2030, say... Where would you like to see it at in terms of, you know, the kinds of films that are being made, who's, you know, in front of the camera, who's behind the camera? So envisaging the future, say in 2030, I'd like to see that, you know, the diversity standards and some of the other work that we're doing are kind of like jump leads to move us faster because the situation is quite critical and you need that combination of winning over people's mindset but also having some rigour underneath. And so the diversity standards, as I say, give that consistency, give that permanent marker about this is our expectation of you, get with it, or you don't get the money. So I think there is that really important um, push that we can give people, but it's also about bringing people with you, giving them the commercial arguments to see that you know, all of these interventions are to make your production or your festival richer in content rather than to take away. So that mindset winning over is absolutely fundamental as well. But in 2030, I'd like us to be further on than where we are. I think we have this window of opportunity right now to capitalise on and we've got to push as much as we can through the doors before the doors gently close again in terms of people being really live and hot to inclusion and, and workplace relationships in the film industry in the UK. So can you tell me, can you tell us for Australian audiences what BAME means? And, you know, we had some discussion about how problematic terms like BAME and diverse are and the kind of terminology that you'd prefer to use. Okay, so we have a term called BAME in the UK, which is pretty much universally hated, I must say. It's a measurement term, which is used by our friends at the Arts Council, and it means Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. But what it is, is an acronym, and it's not a real word, and we should not be using it in day-to-day conversation. So, you know, I would like us to just humanise this whole conversation, make it more commercial, stop othering people by using unfamiliar language, One of the first things I did is change my job title from head of diversity to head of inclusion because I think inclusion paints a picture of where we're going. Diversity just sounds like other, othering. And um, I don't care for it. And likewise, you know, in our language, we should be more careful. And to say people from underrepresented ethnicities just feels much more meaningful in terms of what we're actually trying to address. BAME is just a crap label, so we need to ditch it. Um, We might use it still to measure so that we can measure consistently with the Arts Council and other arts institutions, but it shouldn't be part of our day-to-day discourse on this. It's a commercial argument about having the best talent both sides of the camera. That's what should be focused on, and it should be about permanent change to the infrastructure of the industry to address that. Thanks so much, Jen, for your time and 
you know, generously sharing. Hope to see you in Australia sometime yeah. <laughs> because we're national. So. I'd love to see you in Australia sometime. Get me on the plane. I'd love to come. <laughs> Thank you. So can these really practical ideas be adapted to an Australian context? Should Australian screen and arts funders and the Actor Awards adopt a similar strategy? There are examples in Australia where targets have already worked, specifically Screen Australia's gender targets. These required women to occupy at least 50% of key creative roles of screen productions that received Screen Australia funding and achieved gender parity for the period this initiative was in place. So why not adopt a similar idea for underrepresented culturally diverse communities? To talk more about quotas and breaking into the Australian film industry, I spoke to Pearl Tan, a filmmaker and a senior lecturer at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Pearl also co-founded the Equity Diversity Committee at the MEAA, the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, the Australian Trade Union for the Screen Media and Arts Industries. She was also one of the Australian leaders who participated in Intersect, a peer-to-peer leadership program for culturally diverse and First Nations leaders from the creative sectors. Intersect is a joint program by Diversity Arts and British Council Australia. Thanks for having a chat with me today, Pearl. I've been trying to kind of coordinate this with you for a little while, so (laughs) I feel very, very lucky to be here today and in the afters studio. Yes. What an extra bonus. Thank you, afters. <laughs> I, I thought I'd start with a question that is probably very cliched, <laughs> which is um, what are some of the barriers that culturally diverse people or people of colour face when they're entering the screen sector? So in terms of the barriers, um, there's sort of systemic barriers in terms of who the gatekeepers are and what their unconscious bias allows in or out. So that is slowly changing, but there's still a long way to go in terms of different programs that are available for practitioners nowadays. But I think more interestingly, and maybe secondarily, there's the kind of the personal journey of every artist. And so there's an extra challenge and barrier um, not a, yeah, not a barrier, a challenge for people from diverse backgrounds in terms of them going self-selecting and going, I'm going to enter this industry. I'm going to apply for that funding. Um, I see myself in key creative roles or lead roles. And so for me personally, I think that's certainly been a journey. Very recently, we, along with myself, Amy Stewart and Kayla Ellis won $30,000 worth of development funding through Screen Australia for the Picture Perfect competition. And that's the first funding I've ever received from Screen Australia. And what's interesting is I've been around for quite a while. I've done lots of independent work and I've never thought to even apply to Screen Australia until this is this opportunity. And it's the first funding that I've gotten, even though uh, I'm involved with them I know many of their staff. I'm involved with them on the Gender Matters Task Force now. And so it wasn't even until getting invited to the Gender Matters Task Force or now recently just joined the board of ADG, I also had the same fear of... Do you want to tell people what ADG is? Oh, yeah, the Australian Directors Guild. So Kingston Anderson, who's now left, and it's Diana Burnett who's taken over. But Kingston tapped me on the shoulder and said, are you an ADG member? Because we'd love to have you. And I was like, I'm not because... To get into the ADG, you have to give them your CV and then the board takes a look at your CV and goes, yep, you're a bona fide director to be a full member. Anyone can join as associate, but for a full member, tick, off you go, you are now a member. And I had a fear of going, they're going to look at my CV and just be like, uh, she's just done all this independent stuff. She's not serious or anything. And so I think for me, those challenges, I've really had really lucky that people have championed me at different points in time to allow me to to kick me into the next stage of my career. You mentioned programs or initiatives that that now exist that probably didn't exist 10 years ago or 20 years ago but if people are self-selecting in the way that you know you said you're even self-selecting and I would consider you to be a mid-career kind of screen producer then what are programs or initiatives that can kind of shift that or change that? And and it's also not only one way, right? Because it, it's self-selecting, but the screen industry in Australia does have a reputation for locking people out and being elitist. And, and so it isn't just that people are feeling that way and that feeling doesn't come from anywhere. 
Yeah, there's, I mean, there's programs here at Afters, uh, there's a program called Talent Camp, and that's for emerging screen practitioners. This year, I think we're focusing on serial uh, web series rather than just standalone work. You know, I didn't realize I was mid-career until you labeled me mid-career. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not just in that moment, but for the Intersect program, which was for mid-career, and suddenly I was like, oh. I'm mid-career. Like, <laughs> so, I feel so much older now. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, and I know that's what Intersect was about in terms of this. lots of programs for emerging practitioners, but, you know, what about for mid-career? And what about that next step? How do we progress that? What else is out there? There's, t- there's the Diversity Showcase, which uh, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance um, and Actors' Equity through them have t- joined forces with the Australian Writers Guild and the Australian Directors Guild to create this talent showcase that comes from a model used in the States where all of the networks over there run their own diversity showcases and they pride themselves on getting um, the next big things in, in, in front and behind of the camera. And so we don't have that kind of studio makeup in Australia. We're much smaller industry. So we sort of got the guilds together and the unions together to, to create something similar, but that was cross across all of the different networks and players in Australia. So there, yeah, there are great opportunities out there now, but they have to be resourced. And I'm really hoping that they continue to be resourced because it's, it's a lot of work for the people who are running them and everyone's running them off the smell of an oily rag. So it requires continual funding. I've sort of seen a a pattern now of the second funding is pulled from something. Um, Yes, those people continue on and you see, you know, even filmmakers like um, Gillian Armstrong has come so far and set up a lot of the gender matters things. And so, she sort of looks at her career and goes, well, where are the opportunities for other other people? And when you look back at the careers of women like her, there's, um, I'm not specifically talking about Gillian now, but um, there was free education, you know, at that mm-hmm. at, at particular times in history and you see where their careers have gone. And so it requires funding and requires resources. Free education means that you can have a different demographic in terms of class or socioeconomic demographic Um so so you're kind of talking about a lot of like the diversity showcase, the new best thing or talent camps, but a lot of these are kind of entry level. They're, they're for emerging creatives or emerging screen producers. You know, in terms of mid-career artists like yourself or screen screen producers like yourself, I guess are, are there many opportunities that you're aware of? There's really not. I was speaking to um, a director the other day who has a couple of feature films on the way and is directing television in Australia. And she was talking about those. And I was like, you know, what else have you got going on? And then she said, I've got the short. It's 15 minutes. And she said, there's there's nowhere to get funding. Nowhere. Because she's an established mid-career director who's getting work so it's not she can't apply for things like the metro screen fellowship through the adg which is twenty thousand dollars to make a short um there's the generate program through screen australia for emerging creators which if we didn't get funding through picture perfect we would have been eligible for but for someone like her she's like i've got this short film i want to make it she's first nations storyteller there's nowhere for her to get that funding um, so I do still think there are, you know, big gaps and Metro Screen used to fill this gap. Since Metro Screen has gone, nothing has come in its place, I think, to recover that position. The state agency, Create New South Wales, and um, although they're in flux at the moment and um, Screen Australia have shifted to try and address it, but there's nothing that deals with it in the same way that Metro Screen did it has left a really big gap. The work Metro, it's also left a really big legacy as well because there's mm. so you know so many people who came through Metro Screen. So now I just wanted to kind of make a connection, I guess, to 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 the work that's happening in the UK because I spoke to Jennifer <laughs> from the BFI. I spoke to her as well. <laughs> you know, the BFI have moved towards a model where you know inclusion is and you know diversity mm. is is kind of standardized in their contracts and they will not fund projects if if there isn't a really um, strong kind of representation of people from culturally diverse 
a whole kind of range of different areas that mm. they deem to be, you know, diversity. And um, in Australia, we've kind of done this, like you mentioned, with the gender parity with Create New South Wales 50-50 by 2020 and Screen Australia's Gender Matters KPI. But do you think that these are the kinds of programs that can be adapted for people from culturally diverse backgrounds? Like, the, Do you think a model like the BFI uses mm. or the Arts Council of England uses, which basically says we are not actually going to fund these projects if they don't genuinely engage with diversity and I'm sure that there are flaws and I'm sure they have things are very imperfect as well but to you know something like that that could kind of be relevant or work for people from culturally diverse backgrounds. Yeah absolutely I think that in many ways the industry in the UK is well ahead of Australia and they've been having these discussions for a really long time and they've put things in place that make meaningful change. I I actually don't know 100% where the resistance in Australia comes from because the reason we haven't gone down that path is because there is resistance. Um, there are people who, for whatever reason, think it's too complex or maybe that's the excuse um, to kind of go, okay, gender is somewhat clear. If you look at it in a binary way, men, women, we can put numbers to that. Mm. But once you start going into wider diversity, into um, culturally and linguistically diverse, into disability, into sexuality, into gender beyond binary forms, people start to get really stressed. And I can understand that stress because it is complex. And then you have to ask yourself, which is what I'm doing my PhD on, what about intersectionality? What about when there is more than one axis at play? Because we tend to kind of separate them all off. And then in Australia, we're a very big country, so we start to then also go there is regional diversity because the metropolitan areas compared to regional have very different storytellers and issues. And then there's First Nations and then there's, you know, there's just so many different things. And you go, how does this all work together? And so I think that's where a lot of people are kind of for quotas now, I think, and quite openly so. I love a good quote or I'm like, yeah, hell, why not? You know, and and you'll hear a lot of people saying, I personally back a quota and the ones who don't back quotas or at least targets tend to sort of have a, um, a point of view of like, well, I would want to know that I was selected from a pure merit point and not just because of, you know, because I am X, Y, Z in my identity. Um, but for me personally, I've come to a situation now where it's like, if I get in and it's because I'm of a diverse background, I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm just like, I'll just rock it. You know, I'll just turn up and rock it because I'm really tired of like, you know, I spent a lot of years apologizing for that. And I still do at times when people catch me where I go, oh, am I getting invited to do this thing because I'll be the diverse person in the room? And, you know, I have friends and family and colleagues who just go, don't be ridiculous. You've now been in this space for like a very long time. So, yeah, I, I do think that in Australia, there are lots of people with really good intentions but there's certain pockets where there is still resistance. Um, and I think we're in a position where we have to sort of unpack what that resistance is here. Mm-hmm. And I think that one area that quite amazing is is our First Nations screen and yes. storytelling areas because there's been such big investment in that space for such a long time. Yeah. And I think it's like what you, what you were saying earlier about the need for there to be that investment that is long-term the initiative finishes and then all the work's gone and yeah. and yeah. genuine money, genuine kind of investment and resources. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes from education, that comes from state funding, that comes from um, broadcasters, uh, the fact that there's NITV, um, that the way Blackfellow Films was created and has now grown, um, there is a huge abundance of really really great indigenous um, aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander storytellers um, and yet it wouldn't have happened without sustained support given that there is this pushback in Australia mm-hmm. about you know oh no we can't do that we can't we can't ask for that kind of information it's too complex it's or too radical it's too difficult <laughs> it's too radical and what about merit it's, it's all about risk. merit what yes. about that risk oh, <laughs> it's such a risk she's 
female. She's a woman of color. Oh my god! And she's from the wrong suburb. Um, so, so how do you how do you normalize gathering diversity data? How are we able to kind of reflect on the diversity that we have within? you know, the project we're working on or the organization we're working on if we're not collecting that? And how do you shift that way of that that kind of resistance? How do you, is it shift the resistance or is it kind of break down? Break down. <laughs> Puncture. Um, <laughs> Overturn. <laughs> I think it is beginning to happen. There is a lot around kind of self-identifying, particularly because I come from a space with actors and actors in the past have found it very hard to self-identify and be loud and proud with perhaps what their ethnicity is or their sexuality is because they want to get roles and they want to be seen that they can play a range of roles um, beyond themselves. You know, the SDIN, the um, Screen Diversity and Inclusion Network, which includes heads of all of the um, free-to-air television, Foxtel, um, we at Afters are part of that and there's more uh, have created a new... Um, it's all the major Australian broadcasters. Yeah, and they've started gathering data. So all of the crew from productions, at a certain, like funded productions at a certain professional level, are given a very short survey where they have, they say who they are, and it's self-selection. Um, so they, they're not forced to do it. And I think that's a massive step forward. It'll be really interesting in the next few years to see the data that comes of that. And then it's data that's beyond, you know, just your key creatives as well and looks to a wider pool of, and and I'm hoping we can, you know, break that down into all the different departments as well. Like, you know, different departments are going to have different demographics of people coming through. And that will be really interesting to look at. And I think that then is you know, a measured and researched way of us going, where do we put the resources in and who do we need where, what are the gaps, um, rather than just a going, oh, yeah, I feel like over here we need some help. Um, so, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah, interesting and really exciting too because for the first time, you'll, like you said, you'll be able to benchmark some of that stuff and then afters or Screen Australia or other agencies will also be able to kind of target programs for where those gaps are. actually wanted to ask you a little bit about um, – you know, you're, I really first came to know you when you were the chair of the Equity Committee. Equity e- Diversity Committee. Equity at, Diversity um, Committee. Actors' Equity through yeah, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. <laughs> For people who might not know. <laughs> um, lots of acronyms today. And then and then I also got to know Minority Box, and I, and I really love Minority Box. Um, and do you want to tell people a bit about Minority Box and what, you know, the reason that you felt compelled to make it on the smell of an oily rag, no funding, and <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so Minority Box are like mini documentaries. They're around five minutes long. They're on YouTube, and they interview and juxtapose and compare different people from actors from the same group. So it came from me being um, an actor and sitting in rooms with other East Asian women of my age group and we're all like oh hey how's it going um and we we started to get quite friendly with each other and and started to be like how are we going to get more work you know we're in competition right now we keep seeing each other in the same waiting rooms um and i i kind of walked away and went oh wow everyone's so great i wish there was a way to just kind of galvanize and bring together and show the diversity within diversity and what could i do in my own time in my living room and sort of came up with this so um yeah it started in my tiny one bedroom flat in my living room people would come over and um i'd put up a you know a backdrop and shoot and interview them and then edit it together um and it was really interesting like the first episode was of my kind it was like at that time 25 to 35 year old east asian females and actors and they three of them three of the six of them could speak french and i was like who would have thought that that's a trend you know um for something like this um and it was really interesting to me to see then people dealing with this you know with diversity and being 
othered in the industry and the different ways of dealing with the same issue and the different attitudes. Like some people would just put blinkers on and be like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do my thing. And other people were very conscious of it and it was their fuel, you know, it's like total different ends of the spectrum about ways that people dealt with it. Yeah. So now because my PhD research is moving more into intersectionality and darts very kindly funded (laughs) an episode, which looked at um, mental health, through the lens of people of color. So trying to kind of add, because that's what I'm trying to do with my PhD, is is add to this conversation of diversity and inclusion, but kind of go, can it be more nuanced? Can it be less broad brushstroke? Can we break down some of the assumptions even in the conversations that we're having about it? Because in many ways, lifting one group ends up sometimes subjugating another group so we sort of go okay we're going to do women and then they all they end up being white women or there's no queer women or there's no one with a disability you know and it becomes like how do we balance all of this and I really like that complexity so I'm sort of leaning into it and going I wonder how we can have these conversations in the industry in a more constructive way and not shy away from these really interesting juicy new stories that could emerge from it as well Mm. with minority box it was it was very simple and that's why it was so powerful. It was just, I think for some people who would watch that, it would be an amazing education. They wouldn't have a clue. Like having asking all those women, what do you get cast for? And they were like, was it like sex? Doctors and prostitute, prostitute, <laughs> prostitute. Yes, doctor. Um, because they were Asian Australian. Yeah. Um, it still has a kind of power and relevance because I think for a lot of people in the industry, they probably – have no clue about that Mm. or that kind of that discrimination and that racism that those women experience every day Mm. or the fact that they yeah like they're fluent in French or they speak other languages and would they ever get cast for that no they get cast and said and said what's your pan Asian accent like just put on (laughs) just put on an Asian accent we're like what Asian accent that used to happen a lot (laughs) and I'm sure it does it I see people tell me it still happens you should put on a full-on ochre accent (laughs) and just go yeah, no, but then they'll just go, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem right at all. <laughs> but I just I, I just wanted to mention those. But, I, yeah, the, the definitely the film about mental health, um, I, I just felt that was so powerful because that is something that we also don't talk about and also the impact of being someone who isn't, isn't from a white background and the impact also of kind of experiences of racism or marginalisation or otherness and how that can kind of compound you know, issues of mental health or well-being. I don't know. I just yeah, felt like that absolutely. was so that was so powerful, and that's a really important part of you know an important piece of work that we need to we need to kind of do mm. and work around because I do think it's you know having conversations with people constantly about how exhausted they are, how tired they are, how burned out they are, and how that does kind of lead to all of these other issues, and mm. particularly when you you know if you're on a film set and suddenly you're the only person of that background and you have to educate everybody deal with 101 microaggressions every day Mm -hmm. and do all of that carry that shit as well as you know kind of try and do your job I I don't know that was a really thank you for making that (laughs) thank you um I wanted to ask you about Intersect Intersect is a program that is you know led by the British Council Australia in partnership with Diversity Arts Australia and it's a it's aimed at um creative practitioners and creative leaders who are mid-career and it's a peer-to-peer kind of knowledge exchange so we have a cohort of people um, half from the UK half from Australia and each spend time in each other's country and it's a way of building networks and support and knowledge and also um, supporting those those kinds of mid-career leaders who are not white so in the UK BAME and in Australia it's it's focused on CALD and First Nations people so I wanted to, to ask you why you decided to do Intersect, what you thought you'd get out of it, you know, what you did get out of it and what you anticipate you might get out of it over the to- over a period of time. Um, Intersect for me was really interesting. Again, I didn't realise I was sort of mid-career. <laughs> so, I have to apologise then. If <laughs> no, you, it's a good thing. Do you want to be emerging forever? Like, no, I you know, don't. Are you sure? I don't, yeah. <laughs> And that was really nice. I was just like, oh, yeah, because, I mean, mid-career is a massive span, you know, so I just sort of went, I'm probably at the beginning of mid-career. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, it was like an opportunity to go and explore a different landscape that were dealing with the same problems and 
it was really appealing to me that it was practitioners from multidisciplinary areas. So there's only one other content creator and they're also Australian. We have like someone from circus background, um, theater makers, filmmakers, um, visual artists, museum and art curators, uh, and everyone's dealing with the same issues. Um, and so I knew that I would learn from just, that camaraderie of going, okay, we are all in an artistic space and we're all dealing with the same thing. And then what happened when we got to the UK is we sort of realised that we were dealing with very similar themes. And one of the biggest themes that came out was, should we aim to make institutional change within current institutions or should we create things from the ground up and people can come to us? But is that then seen as a ghettoizing of whatever minority group, you know, that that or marginalized group that that is? And we were all quite torn. I think we'd all worked in both spaces. We had all kind of and were in the middle of cre- I'm currently institutionalized, you could call it, because I'm, um, you know, doing a PhD at UNSW. I'm working full time at afters. So but I thrive in that space and I really like institutions. I like making institutional change, whereas There are times, I think, in a career where people kind of go, I'm so tired of trying to make change in those institutions. I'm just going to go out and do my own thing, which I, which we kind of did with the Equity Diversity Committee, even though that was also part of an institution. Um, or, but with my production company, Pearly Productions, or making Minority Box, it's like, let's just take matters into our own hands and do stuff from the ground up. So, so having those, the most valuable thing, I think, is just having those conversations with, like-minded peers but at the same time being willing to challenge each other this year they happen to be all women all um there's eight of us um all eight of us happen to be women and it's just turned into (laughs) when we reflect and we chat it just turns into this kind of like oh i just need all i need from you is a reminder that i am doing enough and (laughs) i'm just like i mean that's what i asked for they were like what do you need from us i just just tell me to say no to things because i'm just doing so many different things and it was really incredible to see all these other practitioners doing incredible things in their own space and to to end that reinforcement of ours This season, we've been surveying and talking to creatives about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on their practice, both in terms of lockdowns and racism. Lamisa Hack is the co-founder of the publication, pronounced publication, but spelt with a V. It's an online publishing platform that tries to fill a gap in diverse representation and focuses on decolonizing concepts, spaces and experiences. Lamisa spoke with Storycasters podcast producer Alison Tanu Disastro on how COVID has changed the way she works with her team and connects with her community. My name is Lamisa. I am 22 years old. I just graduated from UNSW um, for my teaching degree. Um, I run a publication called The Publication with a V with uh, five other women. And we publish pieces every Monday. We really, really focus on writing pieces that are empathetic, but also critically written as well. So um, pieces that are with lived experience, so grounded in lived experience, but also research heavy as well, because we feel like one is always left without the other and we really need to mix both. Can I ask you what the V is in publication? We do and we all have different responses to that. The short um, answer to that is that we didn't have a handle name um, and then we just changed it to a V. But I would like to see think that the V represents voice, vision. It makes us more memorable. Well, the reason that we started the publication in the first place was because to kind of counteract that kind of slacktivism that we felt we were we were having conversations in as friends in rooms, in closed rooms, and we wanted those conversations to be a lot more nuanced, um, a lot more researched in depth, and we wanted to write. As writers, we wanted to write these pieces so we could all mutually benefit from that. Um, I want to uh, ask your opinion on um, the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia mm-hmm. um, because I guess that is a, a sort of topical or contemporary uh, example of 
I guess you could say, slacktivism in a lot of ways. Right, um, yeah. How was, what was your experience like with the Black Lives Matter movement um, in Australia last year? Yeah, so it was really um, enlightening for me. I think for me it was positive in the sense that um, I was open to a lot of resources. Um, I myself, I'm not Black, I'm Bengali Australian, so I knew that there were hierarchies between our races. I knew that in my community especially, people are racist towards black people, the black community. And I just would engage with it in specific ways, but not consciously. And so after the movement, I went to the protests and stuff, but also I started supporting smaller, small black businesses. I started making sure I followed people and amplified the people that needed to be lifted. And I think, I guess with the publication, because no one on um, our team is black, we would, I guess we, we wrote a piece about the necessity of showing up as allies and we try and talk about what we can do as allies, but um, making sure we never take up that space that wasn't intended for us, I think is the most important thing. And we, we kind of had that vision from the beginning. We're never going to take up space or speak for voices that we just don't represent ever because I know that happens a lot within our community. Lines get blurred a lot um, because we're all seen as the other. But there's so many nuances within that, right? So, yeah, I think I learned a lot. I did a lot of reading, um, a books, a lot of resources on Instagram, so yeah. um, as a creative or as a, you know, a founder of the, your publication, um, how has COVID affected your work, mm. um, your practice? Yeah, how, how, has, how has that whole experience been for you? I've been very privileged um, in COVID in the sense that, you know, I have a roof over my head. Um, I could, could work from home, even though it was not the easiest, but I could work from home. It was possible. With our team, we stopped having face-to-face meetings which is quite essential for us because we feed off each other's energy and we really need that support from each other because um, what we do requires a lot of, I guess, energy and requires a lot of work. So we only had two meetings last year, two face-to-face and online meetings. And in that time, we still pumped out pieces every single week and we we didn't stop. And we just kind of looked back and like, holy, what? How did we do that? We usually had like meetings every single week we'd meet up. And all of a sudden, we just weren't seeing each other. I could personally say that affected my mental health in the sense that being a social media manager is quite isolating in itself. So like when you do all this work and you look up and there's like literally no one, um, you don't know what impact you're making. You question whether your time was being effectively used, um, whether it would do anything. Um, we still did pretty well so like it literally cut us off the entire community like at the start of the year I had so much planned about um, the events that I was going to attend and I was delegating events to the whole team and making sure you have to go to this event you have to talk to these people you have to get to know the community once everything went online it got so exhausting to do like online events and attending them that we just completely could not connect to the community for an entire year and that's what we're trying to like save for lost time we're trying to do this year as much as we can but yeah um it just completely cut us off from community we couldn't actually have any conversations with people which i value the most and now i'll leave you with three key takeaways from today's episode number one change has to be long-term and consistent if organizations introduce temporary targets or temporary funding initiatives they'll inevitably fall away. Change takes conscious effort and time and the regular monitoring of diversity data instead of one-off diversity initiatives introduce permanent changes like the BFI's diversity standards to hold the industry accountable. Number two, quite often a strategy for change is to bring in people from underrepresented communities into existing systems, which are often biased and flawed. This strategy puts the onus on the individuals to change. To work towards genuine equity, we need to review and change the infrastructure of the industry itself. And by the way, 
There are lots of tools to help you reflect on this as an organisation on our Creative Equity Toolkit website and also the Diversity Arts website, including an equity and inclusion checklist for organisations. And number three, strong data collection, monitoring, evaluation and reporting provide the foundations for increasing diversity. Measuring and monitoring diversity is critical in order to ensure that funding and resource allocation is fair and proportionate. And we know that strong data collection, monitoring, evaluation and reporting provide the foundations for increasing diversity. This episode of The Colour Cycle is made by Diversity Arts Australia. We're Australia's national organisation advocating for cultural and racial equity across the arts, screen and creative sectors. Find us wherever you listen to your podcasts or go to our website for more, diversityarts.org.au. Please share this podcast with your friends and leave us a rating on your favourite podcast app. Send us your thoughts, comments and feedback. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at info at diversityarts.org.au. We love hearing from you. Support this podcast by becoming a Colour Cycle patron. By making a small donation through Patreon, you can help us continue this work. And remember, any size is welcome, even the price of a weekly coffee. You can find us at patreon.com slash diversityartsaustralia. The Intersect program is a joint initiative between British Council Australia and Diversity Arts Australia, with support from Creative Victoria and Create New South Wales. Thank you to our core funders, Create New South Wales and the Australia Council, and to organisational partner Information and Cultural Exchange. A shout out to Afters, Australian Film, Television and Radio School, for allowing us to record in one of their studios. The opening and closing track titled You Know What was written in response to COVID-19's impact on the arts by UK-based musician and producer Spider J or Spider Johnson. Additional music was composed by Sarah Mendoza, one of the young digital producers who took part in Diversity Arts' Storycasters program. Storycasters provides training and mentorship to young, culturally diverse digital producers and receives support from Multicultural New South Wales and Create New South Wales. This episode was produced by Jennifer Macy with production support from Diversity Arts' Sonia Mermand and Claire Cow, and Storycasters podcast producers Alison Tanudazastro and Vee Kola. I'm Lena Nahlus. Thanks for listening and yalla bye. Ma salami. <laughs>